We are the world's policemen. We should be the world's policemen. And we should be picking the disputes where we go in and settle things. It is the week of September 21st, and welcome to episode 43 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI, and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, what is old is new. The Eastern Mediterranean is now the scene for a dispute between Greece and Turkey, ostensibly over energy resources. There have been incidents at sea between the Turkish and Greek naval forces and other nations in the region, including France and the United Arab Emirates. Of course, finding a diplomatic solution to the entrenched animosity between Greece and Turkey was a key pillar of NATO during the Cold War. Now, that may be unraveling, and the United States, long the real muscle in the Western alliance, is nowhere to be found. Dana, tell us what's at stake in the Eastern Mediterranean. And also, if you would be so kind, please talk about why in the world UAE is more involved in this dispute than the United States. Thanks, Les. You always give the easy questions to me. So most immediately, what's at stake is military confrontation between two NATO allies, namely Greece and Turkey. But taking a step back from that, what's going on here are a few things. One is the vast and rich offshore deep natural gas and oil reserves in the eastern Mediterranean overlapped with unresolved disputes about maritime boundaries and exclusive economic zones, or EEZs. Um, This has been building for quite a while. We should talk about the unresolved, less mentioned in the beginning, you know, some Cold War era disputes that remain unresolved, specifically the division of Cyprus into Greek and Turkish controlled zones. And then recently what's happened is one in the disputes between Greece and Turkey and Cyprus about who gets to explore and develop offshore gas fields where you have uh, an activist Turkey who has sought to back the UN recognized government in Libya. You have Egypt and its attempt to develop its offshore energy reserves. You have Russia expanding its naval base In Syria, you have Israel debating how it may develop its offshore gas reserves. You have all of these different governments and countries looking to develop their own uh, offshore gas reserves, who is going to build pipelines with whom, where, uh, again, underlying or overlying these uncontested or contested maritime boundaries. You have, as Les mentioned, France backing Greece uh, and sending some naval deployments. France has an interest in seeing its uh, regional security protected in the Mediterranean. You have the European Union unable to decide on a course of action to resolve this specifically how and when to push back on Turkey, Greece demanding sanctions on Turkey, other members of the European Union tepid and whether or not to further alienate Turkey, having already experienced what it means to push Erdogan into a corner on other regional issues. And just to bring it back to the UAE, which Les asked me to talk about, why is the UAE deploying fighter jets to Greece? That is all about Turkey. It is about uh, a concern that is both in Europe, among Arab countries uh, in the Middle East, and at times members of Congress not unified between the executive branch and the legislative branch of the U.S. government about an overly active and aggressive Turkish foreign policy that extends from Turkish actions in Syria and Iraq all the way to Libya and now specifically in the eastern Mediterranean, Turkey forging ahead, claiming to have worked out economic agreements without resolving the contested maritime issues, etc., 
So Jamil, our president, President Trump, likes to say nice things about President Erdogan of Turkey, seemingly every chance he gets, despite the fact that uh, Erdogan is proving himself to becoming uh, more and more authoritarian all the time, his views are becoming more extremist. Is the fact that the U.S. isn't more involved in this dispute a de facto sign that Trump is siding with Erdogan on the Greece-Turkey animosity? I mean, I don't think so. I think that, uh, you know, the U.S. has always played this uh, a little bit closer to the vest. I think we generally support, actually, Greece's claims in this area, but the president does have this odd uh, affection towards Erdogan. And uh, we've seen the deployment of uh, the US, uh, the USS Herschel Woody Williams uh, to the region, which is a, a floating base. Uh, it was already scheduled to go, um, but it's there now. And so, you know, the US has forced the region, but it's not going to get involved in this dispute. It's, it, that's not the US's play. Um, in fact, you've seen, uh, as, as Dana was laying out, other European nations much more involved, the French deploying forces to the region, Angela Merkel um, uh, in Germany playing a much more uh, aggressive role in the discussions. And in a lot of ways, you know, this is this is also consistent with the sort of Trump, you know, let them solve their own problems sort of approach to this. You know, I don't think that he's going to get actively involved. Now, again, one phone call from Erdogan or somebody close to Erdogan, you know, could change this. That's, as we've seen with the president, because he's not sort of committed to one particular worldview or one set of allies or the like, he's often taking input uh, from a range of sources. One phone call from the right person uh, with the right connection, make the right argument that resonates with them in a given moment uh, could change his views on this. And so um, I think more to be seen about how this plays out, but this is not a new tension. This has been going on for a while. Um, and the most recent uh, iteration of this um, has been going on for a while, um, you know, back to August and, and the like with Turkey, you know, deploying vessels to the region, Greece then running military operations. And so it continues to be hotly contested and, and continues to heat up. Jamil, it seems like you don't want to overreact to every crisis that happens uh, during this administration. But the Mediterranean is in the middle of everything for us, right? It's Europe, it's Africa, it's the Middle East. Russia's implicated. The energy supply lines impact China. If there's a nexus in the world where, you know, the, the vast majority of interests kind of collide, it's the Mediterranean. Our security posture for the entire post-World War II era was built on peace in the Mediterranean. The U.S. brokered peace between Greece and Turkey before. We've made a concerted effort diplomatically to keep them from getting after each other. They're in the same military alliance with us in Western Europe. And now with this this kind of almost bipartisan, dare I say it, Dana, bipartisan approach towards America pulling back from the world, we're seeing all of these old conflicts reemerge. And if we're going to have chaos in the Mediterranean, it throws everything into question, doesn't it? Shouldn't we be a lot more alarmed about the fact that the U.S. isn't more directly involved, that we're relying on parties that have specific material interests like UAE and even France, which are, which are not unbiased observers, which are not thinking globally, which are not thinking about the best interests of you know, vast swaths of civilization, the U.S. needs to be there. Only we can play that role. If, if we don't do it, these other specific actors will, or God forbid, uh, China will finally realize that as a global power, it behooves it to become involved in disputes like this. So this is really very problematic, it seems to me. 
Absolutely, Les. I agree with you 100% uh, that it, it is hugely problematic, but it's representative of a larger problem in the world, as you point out, a larger bipartisan view uh, here in the United States that America ought to withdraw from the world uh, and focus here at home. Of course, the Donald Trump version of that is perhaps more forward-leaning than even the, the Barack Obama version of that. Uh, Barack Obama still wanted the U.S. to play a role out in the world. He just wanted more troops to come back. And Donald Trump is actually willing to let uh, other, other allies take this problem on, let them deal with it. In a lot of ways, NATO is playing the key role in trying to figure this this dispute out, um, or NATO ought to play the key role. And as the lead partner in NATO, America ought to play that role. We won't. Um, and so we'll let the other NATO allies come in and try to re- resolve this dispute between two NATO allies. Again, Turkey on the edges, to be fair, of NATO, um, uh, particularly with their the recent deal with the Russians when it comes to the missiles. Look, there's a larger problem here, which is um, when America uh, isn't seen as playing a fair role in the world, right, or a role at all in the world, other people will step in that vacuum, whether that's the Chinese uh, or the like. And so it's not surprising. Uh, to see in the Middle East, you've seen the Russians jump into the vacuum. In Asia, you've seen the Chinese jump into the vacuum. Uh, in Europe, you're seeing increasingly Germany jump into the vacuum, and you're seeing that happen here again. And so it's not surprising that where America's absent, other actors with their own per, uh, own individuals just jump in and, and jump into the vacuum. And we allow that vacuum to exist at our peril. So look, the United States has played an active diplomatic role in mediating the unresolved disputes in the Mediterranean, specifically the Eastern Mediterranean, and specifically Cyprus and Greece and Turkey. When there is bipartisan talk about withdrawing from the world, I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced about it. There is certainly talk about the United States not needing to be as militarily invested, right? There's talk about reducing our troop levels, our commitments in Europe, the same thing in the Middle East. But no one's talking about defunding the Foreign Service or the State Department. And this is a classic example of where a little diplomatic heft and consistent empowering, it doesn't have to be the Secretary of State flying to Cyprus every other week. This is a great example where the State Department below the Secretary level could be actively engaged in mediating these disputes. This is a clear example where there is no military solution. Everybody loses if this escalates to military conflict. And it's not just about the United States having an interest in preventing war. There are business interests here, too. There are U.S. companies involved in some of the economic arrangements to develop some of these offshore fields, specifically Chevron and before Noble Energy off the coast of Israel. So there actually is a reason the overarching interest for the United States is not material, but there certainly are business interests here as well. And we've already seen when boats full of refugees come from North Africa or from sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, across the Mediterranean and swell the shores of Europe and, and flood refugee camps, that influences politics in Europe in a way that often is to the detriment of the United States and transatlantic partnerships. So we do have an interest here in mediating. And this, to me, is just a classic example. It's not going to require sending in our Navy to the Mediterranean. This is about diplomacy, and, and we're not doing Jamil, let's take Dana's argument Seriously, it's a fair point. Is it required that we play a huge security role in the Mediterranean, that we rely on our military strength and or the threat of it to resolve disputes like this? Or should we just be more active diplomatically, perhaps on the development side? Greece has got some real economic challenges. Maybe we could be stepping up to help them a little bit more as Turkey's economy is growing, Greece's isn't. Is there a formula here where we can play a salutary role without having to rely on our defense forces? Well, look, of course, Dana's 
right that this is a primarily a diplomatic situation for us to get involved in. But let's be clear. Diplomacy is only as effective as it is when you're willing to back it up, right? This idea that diplomacy just works in a vacuum and we just have a bunch of State Department diplomats go run around the world and negotiate and, and there's no need for military force uh, to back up certain types of diplomacy is crazy. Right? It, ex- it demonstrates exactly why the Obama administration's diplomacy was a complete disaster. Right, It explains why we got the terrible Iran nuclear deal, because everyone knew we weren't willing to back up our words with military might. It explains why China's been so active against us uh, when it comes to uh, cyber activities and when it comes to activities in the South China Sea, because everyone knows we aren't willing to back it up with military force. So diplomacy only works, and maybe not in this scenario, because this one's one, a particular case where we're not going to, everyone knows we're not going to put any military troops on the line, right? But diplomacy generally works when you're willing to back it up with some amount of military force. And the more the world learns that the U.S. is scared of being involved, is going to pull all troops home and end all endless wars, the less seriously they take us. That's why they didn't take us seriously during the Barack Obama administration for eight years. That's why they haven't taken us seriously for the last four years under Donald Trump. You know, what's so interesting, though, about what you're saying is this idea of like willingness to use force is that the Trump administration has consistently signaled that it's not going to use force and it's not gotten us any closer to diplomatic resolution. So if you want to do the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal example, Iran is even closer to developing a nuclear weapon than it was under the JCPOA. And it's still funding terrorist groups all over the Middle East. If it's North Korea, which listeners we're going to talk about next, the despite predicting like little rocket man and, and hellfire and fury, the North Koreans haven't given up anything. If it's about Russia and pushing back on Russia, we haven't in any way demonstrated. In fact, the Russians are confronting us in Syria, paying Taliban for bounties in Afghanistan, and we're no safer. So, so the interesting thing is this notion of willing to back up use of force, like the Trump administration isn't doing it Well, let's give a little bit of credit to the Trump administration. I've got huge concerns about the overall approach, but the Trump administration has specifically changed rules of engagement where U.S. troops are in harm's way and been more aggressive in prosecuting the military aspects of our policy. He's not sending more troops necessarily to some of these countries, although actually he does. He just doesn't talk about it. He's not withdrawing as many as he'd want people to think. But we've been where we have been involved, we've been more aggressive, at least symbolically so in some cases in, in a real sense. So it's not not entirely that the administration isn't willing to commit resources. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem there, Les, is that at the end of the day, the question is, what are we interested in? Are we interested in peace and stability or, you know, unending conflict here? And so, yeah, stepping up rules of engagement to be more active to go against enemies, I get it. But then the question is follow through on the other side, what comes after, right? It's like Charlie Wilson's war. We're not going to build the schools on the other side. And this is an area where all of us bipartisan supported bills or actions for not extensive foreign assistance, but enough foreign assistance to be meaningful, to contribute to what happens after the fighting stops, right? And this administration isn't doing that. But again, the Eastern Mediterranean, these are not countries that need a ton of U.S. foreign aid. What they need is a facilitator or a mediator who can sit there. These are not insurmountable technical issues to deal with where the continental shelves are, where the EEZs, the exclusive economic zones are, how we're going to, these are not insurmountable problems. But what's been very clear thus far is without some sort of active diplomatic role, it's just getting worse. And now you have Lavrov making visits to Cyprus, et cetera. It's just not, it's not in our interest for the Eastern Mediterranean to be dominated by Russian interests or Chinese interests 
or an aggressive Turkey who doesn't feel that anyone is going to push back on Turkey. But that's exactly the point is that Dana's exactly right that the reason the Trump administration has been so ineffectual is because everyone knows they're not willing to back it up with force. They know that Donald Trump, when it comes to the use of force, in a lot of ways, is just like Barack Obama. Yeah, he might punch back on Qasem Soleimani. Yeah, he might talk about uh, other activities against North Korea. But when push comes to shove, he's not really going to do it. He's not really going to commit forces. He's talked about ending all endless wars. He's just like Barack Obama. And that's why he's just as ineffective as Barack Obama was when it came to foreign policy. That's You're exactly right, Dana. 100% correct. The reason Trump administration has been effective is they're just like the Barack Obama administration. I just disagree in terms of the heft of diplomatic versus other tools from the U.S. national security toolbox that were brought to bear on issues. I'm not going to compare the two. It's not apples and apples, but I know we also need to move on. Let's talk about kind of the Muslim world and Trump's approach to it here. He's been very pro-Erdogan. Erdogan has been a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is anathema to many of our other allies in majority Muslim countries, Dana. Is there a fissure here between our at least tacit support for Turkey and what the president is trying to do in the Gulf with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and other countries? Is that dichotomy kind of rattling around the world and is that going to come back at us? I certainly think there's tensions in the approach. So I would differentiate Trump's approach to the Muslim world here. I think that he feels that he has a personal relationship with Erdogan, that they they see something in each other and that they can get deals done at this personal level. Although we've seen the president make commitments like withdrawing troops from northeast Syria in October 2019 that were certainly to the detriment of U.S. interests. And then if you extend this idea of of what Turkey is doing across the Middle East or or in other parts of the world, the United Arab Emirates recently uh, made a peace treaty with Israel. And certainly that is about mutual economic interests, remaking of the strategic landscape of the region, uh, preventing Israel from unilaterally annexing parts of the West Bank. But certainly part of it from the view of Abu Dhabi was to push back on Turkey. Turkey working increasingly with Qatar and intervening in conflicts from Syria to Libya, uh, not in ways that have facilitated political processes. And the Eastern Mediterranean is yet another example. Jamil, you want to weigh in here? Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the real challenge for us is that we have uh, these allies that have different perspectives on the world. And so when you take our traditional allies in the Middle East, they are adamantly opposed to our enemies in Iran. So we have a common enemy there. Uh, But you're right. Our traditional allies in uh, the Arab world have concerns about uh, the extremes within their own ranks, right? They feel under threat, right? So whether it's the uh, Emiratis or the Saudis uh, feeling under threat from the Muslim Brotherhood, we saw what happened in Egypt after the Arab Spring, and we've seen now the the return of the military to power in Egypt. And so I think that at the end of the day, the U.S. has got to act in our own interests. And the president's current sort of personal relationship, as Dana correctly describes it, with Erdogan uh, is one that is probably not in our interest because it allows. Uh, Erdogan to get away with things uh, that our, our our general allies in the Middle East don't like. Um, and it also allows him to do deals uh, that are counter to our interests with a NATO ally buying missiles from the Russians. That's hugely problematic, something we should have never let happen. And I doubt any other American president would have permitted that to happen. So if I may be so bold as to give my own take on this, Jamil, I know you're, one of your favorite cliches to hate is the ending endless wars thing. The cliche that I hate is that the U.S. is not the world's policeman. That's total baloney. We are the world's policeman. We should be the world's policeman. And we should be picking the disputes where we go in and settle things by force if necessary, 
by de-escalating tensions if necessary, by negotiation, by soft power, by foreign aid, whatever tools in the toolbox we need to use, we should be willing to use them where the disputes are antithetical to our interests. What's going on in the Eastern Med between Greece and Turkey is exactly that kind of dispute. The U.S. should be playing a much bigger role. We should go ahead and boldly proclaim that we're going to be the cop on the beat and we're not going to put up with this nonsense anymore between two countries that are ostensibly our allies. The consequences of this are going to be far reaching. All right, let's switch to our second topic today, which is North Korea. There are troubling signs that North Korea is preparing a new demonstration of its nuclear weapons program. Perhaps some have speculated a launch by submarine of a ballistic missile, which would be a pretty dramatic expansion of the threat to the United States. President Trump's negotiations with Kim Jong-un appear to be completely dead, and Kim himself keeps disappearing for weeks at a time with no real explanation later for what happened to him. Jamil, Joe Biden says he wants to reset relations with North Korea and presumably take a different approach to what President Trump has been doing, an approach that'll be more productive. Do you think that's at all plausible here? Well, I think certainly a different approach is plausible. What we've seen with uh, President Trump is uh, is sort of very strong, aggressive threats and uh, sort of pointed uh, jabs at uh, the North Koreans. And then get them to the table. Uh, you have a conversation, and uh, the deal is put on the table, which isn't pre-baked, hasn't been worked out by negotiators ahead of time. There's no real uh, sort of negotiation after Dana's point about about diplomacy and negotiation. And the president sort of signs off on a theoretical deal that would have been worse than an I two agreed framework. Right? As terrible as that was, all conservatives hate that Wendy Sherman orchestrated deal, and President Trump uh, essentially gives in and gives and gives the North Koreans even more than that. Of course, immediately within seconds, his State Department walks it back uh, and says this is not the deal, starts talking about uh, nuclear disarmament and talking about how the North Koreans have to give up all their nuclear weapons. But the North Koreans know that there's play in the joints now between where the U.S.'s stated position is historically, where the president's position might be, and where the Secretary of State is. The reason there is no deal to be had here uh, is because fundamentally, the U.S. and North Korea aren't in the same place. And frankly, the president, uh, when he went to negotiate Kim Jong-un, was in a different place than his own larger administration was. And that's where the real dichotomy is. So I'll just say, you know, in terms of what I think would be different in a in a Biden uh, approach here, I agree with uh, most of what Jamil said in terms of what Trump has tried to achieve with this, with the emphasis on a personal relationship. And and what people in the Biden camp have said is you're not going to see these the pageantry, the summits, the handshakes, all of this. What you're going to see is a return to steady state diplomacy below the presidential level, below the secretary of state level, et cetera. And I also think, and I I think I sound like a brokered record now talking about some of this is is that the United States is not going to accomplish anything on North Korea by itself. It's going to need to have governments who want to see the disarmament, uh, the denuclearization of North Korea on its side. And that means that you're going to have to have people that are going to work with you at the Security Council for sanctions. It means you're going to have to talk to the Chinese, et cetera. And that's going to be very difficult at this point in time, given the height of tensions between China and the United States. I can't really see at this point why the Chinese would want to resolve an issue that keeps the United States weighed down in East Asia. Yeah. You know, the other thing I worry about, Dana, though, is I worry that what we will see as we have these negotiations negotiations below the secretary of state level and sort of, you know, down a couple of clicks is that we'll see an effort to return to a JCPOA like deal uh, with the North Koreans, where we accede to their possession of nuclear weapons. We accede to their ability to uh, to continue to enrich uranium on the peninsula. Um, and the whole long storied history of a denuclearized Korean peninsula goes out the back door, right? Now, maybe we make some trades for that uh, under a Biden administration. We uh, provide some capabilities or solidify our nuclear umbrella uh, over our allies in the region with Japan and South Korea, although we've 
we've seen President Trump walk in some of that back. But I actually worry that a Biden administration approach to North Korea would be, hey, we ran this playbook over here with Iran. It worked out so well, right? Under their theory of the world, which is clearly wrong. Let's run that play with North Korea. The North Koreans knowing, hey, we can get a deal like the ones the Iranians got, right? Where they can enrich their own nuclear, their own uranium. They can do advanced centrifuge research where they can design a weapon, right? Even behind closed doors, right? We can just maintain our nuclear force. And, and maybe the Biden administration, because it wants a deal, will do that deal with us. We've got a weapon. They just got to recognize the reality. And so that's what I worry about, Dana. Dear listeners of the podcast, one day we will talk only about the foreign policy issue at hand and not tie it back to the Iran nuclear deal. But since Jamil did that, let me say, I think that if there were to be a Biden Biden administration, there have been some lessons learned from the Obama administration. And one of those is that the structure of the nuclear deal with Iran, especially because it was a political or an executive agreement, would not last beyond serious changes in the makeup of Congress. And it would be very easy for a future president or a future national security team to change its tune and pull out of that agreement, which in the end, regardless of what you think of the merits of the Iran nuclear deal, it would be really hard to make the case that we're in a better, more safe and secure position now. So I think in terms of lessons learned from entering into an agreement in which essentially the nuclear infrastructure is mothballed and does not have to be dismantled and a level of uh, domestic enrichment is allowed, ballistic missile program not taken apart, etc. I think there are some lessons learned that that construct is not going to be sustainable. We're not even talking about the long term. We're talking about the medium term. And second of all, the difference is another difference, I would say, is that in the Iran context, it was the United States negotiating with the other members of the P5 plus one without any government from the region at the table. And this would be very different because the Chinese would presumably be at the table. It's just very different. So I, I, that's not really my concern. But I do think this is a increasingly intractable situation on the Korean peninsula. And also, we just don't have really good intelligence, right? It's really hard to know what's going on. The regime is totally opaque. We haven't even talked about how it's one of the has one of the worst human rights records in the world. And meanwhile, we'd have to be working, I assume, with China, who also has one of the most abhorrent human rights records in the world. No, I think, Danny, you're exactly right about the human rights records, both in uh, North Korea and China. Uh, and it's hugely problematic. I, I do think uh, you're also right to say that the intel problem is a really hard one, right? The fact that we uh, don't know really what's happening in North Korea, the fact that Kim Jong-un disappears for weeks, even months at a time, there were rumors about his death, rumors about his, his sister taking control. Um, these are real serious problems. I mean, they represent a, a challenge that the U.S. faces. We don't know today when, with some with certainty, when the, when the North Koreans are going to test nuclear weapons. Um, and that's a huge problem, too. That lack of information makes it very hard to work a deal. And so I think you're right to point out those differences between Iran and North Korea. My only point was that I worry that a Biden administration, like an Obama administration, would be willing to sort of say, look, we have to recognize the reality on the ground. The reality on the ground in Iran was they have uranium enrichment. We'll just have to see to that. The reality on the ground in North Korea is they have nuclear weapons. I worry that in pursuit of a long-term deal in a Biden administration, we'll recognize the reality they have nuclear weapons and they're not giving them up. And that is a reality that we should not recognize. It's a reality that President Trump was right to push back on. And it's unfortunate that when he went to the table with Kim Jong-un, that he didn't stick by that. Had the U.S. kept its early position um, and used that leverage it had, we might have actually gotten to a real deal and not something at or worse than the, the 92 agreed framework. 
you know, the thing where I disagree with you, Jamil, is I think we do have to explicitly recognize the reality on the ground in the sense, though, that what North Korea is really doing is acting as a cat's paw for China. It was just a few days ago, Xi Jinping congratulated Kim Jong-un on the 72nd year of the North Korean regime. We know that China is the one violating international sanctions on North Korea. They're sustaining Pyongyang when others won't, or at least when they can't persuade us to send them food aid. It's China that steps in and keeps the Kim regime alive, the Kim dynastic regime. Uh, And every time we enter into negotiations, either directly with North Korea as this president has done, or through multi-party talks of others have done, it gives China an excuse to keep doing what it's doing and use the North Korea issue as a distraction for us while China implements its agenda elsewhere. So the more we focus on Pyongyang and their crazy antics, the more we're letting China off the hook for the stuff they're doing that's really really damaging to our interests. I would be remiss if we don't just very briefly raise some of the excerpts about the North Korea problem that are coming out uh, in the newspapers about John Bolton's book. So if listeners to this podcast haven't read the book itself or haven't read some of the summaries of the North Korea sections, how close the Trump national security team believed we were to military conflict, to a major test to something. There's excerpts about then Secretary of Defense Mattis always having his operations team right near him and a special phone in his shower. So the minute there was a launch, he would be able to be notified. And the um, pressure of whether or not the United States would have to respond to a North Korean nuclear launch with nuclear launch attack of our own, uh, where it would hit in the United States, what the death and casualty figures would look like. It's truly terrifying. So we've talked about it a lot as a foreign policy challenge. And I would just say from these excerpts, understanding that people in the Trump administration were really combating the notion of having nuclear warfare happen again and not knowing what to expect from the North Korean dynastic regime. Truly, truly terrifying and a very real problem. You know, it's interesting, Dana. I've I've been reading the Bolton book and the paragraphs and the parts on North Korea are alarming, but I'm a little bit alarmed by what you said. I'm more alarmed about just John Bolton's complete unwillingness to entertain any kind of the other activities of the administration. I mean, it was for me, it was a classic example of an administration that can't even run one of its own highly prioritized policies, right? The National Security Advisor was completely at odds with the State Department over what the details should be. You had a commander-in-chief who was either disengaged or worried about making some kind of video or overreacting to Kim Jong-un's latest statements one way or the other. It was it was a demonstration for me of an administration that really isn't doing the job of protecting the American people. They're not formulating a sensible policy and then executing it. It's t- almost total chaos. Well, that is terrifying. Agree. All right. Shall we move to the part of the show where we talk about issues that we're following that are not necessarily on the front page? I will go first. I'm still tracking these demonstrations in Belarus where a disputed election has sent the people out to the street. They're tired of not being able to elect their leaders. They're not necessarily anti-Russia in Belarus, but they are in favor of democracy. They want their votes to count and they continue to show up. And what it, what it demonstrates, I think, is how easily it would be to disrupt Vladimir Putin's agenda if we really wanted to. All you have to do is support people who want democracy and human rights, say nice things about them, give them a little bit of assistance in international fora, support their voices here and there. 
And then suddenly Vladimir Putin's got a huge problem in his backyard. It's, it's a lesson for us about opportunities that we're not seizing. Dana. So dear listeners of the podcast, I'm going to talk about the Iran nuclear deal one more time because today marks the end of the 30 day process invoked by the United States to trigger snapback at the UN Security Council, snapback of all sanctions that were in place before the nuclear deal came into effect. The general theory of the Iran nuclear deal, once it came into effect by a resolution at the Security Council, is that any member of the Security Council, um, if it felt that Iran deemed that Iran was in noncompliance with the with its uh, nuclear related commitments, could invoke snapback and then all the pre-existing resolutions on Iran for its nuclear activity and ballistic missile activity would come back into effect. That happens today, invoked by the United States. Earlier today, there was uh, a big press conference uh, with multiple members of President Trump's cabinet talking about all the ways in which the United States is going to attempt to bring these sanctions back into force, except the difference here is that the Secretary General of the United Nations does not deem the United States to still be a member of the Iran nuclear deal, neither do the other members of the Iran nuclear agreement, and thus it remains to be seen what exactly can happen because no other member to this agreement believes that the United States is a party to agreement and thus has standing to invoke the snapback. And so now uh, perhaps the United States is going to uh, roll out many, many more sanctions to inhibit and stop activities that the rest of the members or the signatories, the Iran nuclear deal believe are permissible under the nuclear deal, which the other members do not believe have been erased. So we will see. Stay tuned. But today is a big day for Iran watchers. Dana, are you not at all concerned on that issue that effectively our allies are now in favor of selling weapons to Tehran by their actions? Absolutely. So the Iran arms embargo is another part of the Iran uh, nuclear deal. And the arms embargo uh, restrictions would have come off in October. So that's not actually part of today. I do. I am alarmed that objectively there should be action to extend the arms embargo because Iran is already violating uh, several arms embargoes. Um, and this should be a very straightforward issue that certainly our allies and partners in Europe should want to work with us on. But the nature of, of diplomacy and interaction um, and arm twisting uh, and thuggery by the Trump administration has put the Europeans in an incredibly difficult spot where they believe that it's in their interest uh, to try to keep the nuclear agreement alive and would have looked for ways to extend the arms embargo. But it's quite frankly, very difficult to work with the Trump administration. So the European Union has said that they will keep the arms embargo. And now the question is all the ways in which the United States should try uh, to keep other countries from selling um, sophisticated weapons to the Iranians. And of course, the two governments that would be most interested in doing this are Russia and China. So in the context of great power competition uh, and pushing back on what are truly the strategic threats to the United States, my big concern here is that actions under or pursuant to the, to the nuclear deal issues are actually going to push all of our adversaries closer together. And I don't think it's it's good for the United States or in our interest. I really feel like we should do a special two hour podcast on our views of the Iran nuclear deal at some point just to kind of get this get this all out on the table. All right, Jamil, what issue are you following? I mean, put aside the fact, right, Les, that uh, when the Europeans, our allies, the Europeans had the chance to vote on just such a thing, extending the arms embargo. No, they didn't vote against it. They actually just abstained. Right. So you had the U.S. and the Dominican Republic in favor. All of our European allies took a pass and the Russians and Chinese were opposed. So, so I would just yeah. say some of that is about the Europeans. 
but also some of it is about the kind of diplomacy or lack of diplomacy or text of the resolution put forward by the United States. Whatever excuses we may have, our European allies don't have the guts to carry out uh, the, the actual text of the deal, which is when Iran violates, which it has repeatedly. It's months away from, from enough fissile material to build a nuclear weapon. They are in clear violation of the accord. That requires snapback. That requires the arms embargo to go back into place. And our allies won't do it. The only reason we're in a snapback scenario today is our allies didn't back that resolution. No, anyway. no, 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 no. The reason we're in a snapback situation today is because the Trump administration decided to unilaterally withdraw from the agreement rather than continuing to negotiate with the E3 on possible ways to strengthen the Iran nuclear agreement. Continue to negotiate when they weren't willing to come to any sort of an agreement. Anyway, That's we'll come absolutely back to that. not true. They were very we close to an agreement and the president decided to unilaterally withdraw anyway. And now we we are closer to Iran having a nuclear weapon than we were under the JCPOA. The JCPOA, which would allow Iran to sprint to a weapon as soon as they had the ability to make one. It's the J- we're, we'll, well, we're in a out. great situation to negotiate those sunsets now, aren't we? I think we are. I actually think we're strengthened. The, as soon as we start re- start imposing third-party sanctions, which is frankly we should have done from day one, and the Europeans have to make a choice, that's when this will really come to pass. Now, All right. I'm calling a timeout. We will hash this out. Grant, we will work with Grant to find a time where we can uh, just go through every single one of these issues, because that would be a lot of fun. And it's not fair to Jody that we're not including her in this conversation. So, Jamil, I ask you, sir. All right. What so, is the we all agree on that. Jody must be part of the conversation. We do agree. Uh, so I'm following uh, the fact that H.R. McCaster, um, uh, Trump's former national security advisor, uh, is is warning uh, that this Afghan that the Afghan peace talks are a bad idea for the U.S., uh, as we all knew they were. Um, and that they will ultimately fail. I mean, this is what happens when you make clear to all the parties that you won't stay in the region, uh, you won't stay involved, you want to end all endless wars, you want to come home, you end up getting involved in peace talks with terrorists, uh, including the, the very same people uh, that President Obama released from Guantanamo Bay. They're now at the table uh, negotiating with us um, over, over the future of Afghanistan. By the way, the same people who hosted Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan uh, back during the 9-11 attacks. It is their, it is their group, the Taliban, who we're now negotiating with about the future of Afghanistan. This is a total fail on our part. H.R. McMaster is exactly right. These negotiations are blood negotiations. We should never have gotten into them, number one. And as we're watching them go down, they ultimately will fail. And ultimately, we will not we will not benefit from it. The U.S. should have stayed the course in Afghanistan. And the fact that we wanted to pull our troops out is exactly why we're here today. And in this sense, the Trump administration and the Obama administration are of a piece. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.